Father, thank you, Lord, for the ministry that you have with us through your Holy Spirit, through your Son. Lord, thank you for our opportunity to learn from your word, our opportunity to offer ourselves up to you, our opportunity to, to grow, grow with each other, grow in our knowledge, but our, in our experience of you. Just pray, Father, that this learning of, of how you prepared for us to thrive through this time that, that Jesus spent with his disciples in this upper room on the night before he died, uh, how that can impact us in our relationships with each other, in our walks with you. Lord, we want to be a body of believers that are furthering each other in our relationship with you and our walk with you. We want to thrive in our walk with you. We want to thrive in our relationships with each other. Lord, I pray that you teach us more of that this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're in John 14. Jesus is in his upper room with his disciples. His arrest is hours away in the garden. And he wants to pass on to his disciples what they need to be believing so that during this time of his separation from them, their hearts will not be troubled. And we know that we can trust in what he's told us here so that in this time of his physical separation from us, our hearts need not be troubled. And and so we looked at last week at the fact that followers of Christ can believe that we will be with him in heaven. And also we can believe that we walk with him as the gospel. We saw in verse six, in response to Thomas's question, when Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How is it that we can know the way to where you're going? And Jesus's response to him was that he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm all three of those. And no one comes to the Father except through me, saying to Thomas, Thomas, it's all about your relationship with me. That's what gets you to where I'm going. Having told them that he's going to prepare a place for them and for us, that where he is, we might be also with him one day, with the Father. And then he makes this statement. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And we're not going to get into this, this statement here this much, but, but know that he is in, he's giving them foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit that would enlighten them to all the experiences that they've had with Jesus. He's telling them of that, that helper that we have that they didn't have at this point. He, that's why he said, makes this peculiar statement. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I mean, from now on, you have seen him. So he's referencing back all these experiences they had already had with the Father, but without the help of the Holy Spirit, they didn't recognize it as such. 
So the conversation goes on and Philip pipes up. It says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long and still you do not know me, Philip? I was a youth pastor uh, for 12 years. This question of Jesus was a great comfort to me. You know, because so often it'd be like, I've been with this student for six years. Lord, what have you done in their life, you know? Um, But I want you to know, Jesus isn't exasperated or distraught by Philip's knowledge here. Philip is actually making some great statements of faith in Christ. The same way that Paul writes that God's grace is sufficient for us, Philip is saying, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. He's not saying that his and the other's faith require seeing the Father in order for them to go any further. Okay, he's actually looking to Jesus and, and declaring, I know that you are the one that can show us the Father. I know that you are the Father's representation to us. And he's asking for something that saints of the Old Testament, including Moses, had asked, show me yourself, and had been denied. He believes that Jesus has that sort of access to the Father. And and he anticipates that something of, of of a... further step of a further movement in God's plan is about to happen here, not anticipating that Jesus is going to be leaving through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, more likely anticipating they're going to go deeper and further into what it is that they've been experiencing. And they are in a different way. So Jesus continues, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the main idea I want to get across to you from our verses this morning is that not letting our hearts be troubled. Remember, Jesus is saying, believe these things so that your hearts will not be troubled during this time of my physical separation from you. Not letting our hearts be troubled involves working for, with, and through Jesus. We're going to see in our passage this morning of how it is that Jesus' physical separation from us as his followers only unlocked a greater opportunity to work with him than ever could have come with his very physical 
bodily presence here on earth. And it unlocked the opportunity to work through him in a way that matches his almighty, all-knowing, ever-present power as very God. Not letting our hearts be troubled involves working for, with, and through Jesus. So first thing we want to see that we can believe from this passage here is that God the Father was on mission in Jesus. That's what we're told here where he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The issue at hand here is, is, is one of Jesus' unity with the Father. It's been the subject of John's gospel since the beginning of our study. You, you'll recall from John 1.18, all the way back in chapter 1, John wrote, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John, with that, having seen him, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and obviously the inspiration of his words in in the writing of his gospel, he's looking back and realizing Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made the Father known. Colossians 1.15 tells us of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, I love how the writer of Hebrews opens this up. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's talking about the Old Testament times in many ways. At many times and at many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But then in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, he says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So in other words, He created the world through him. Everything started with him. Everything ends with him. He is the heir of all things. His final message has come to us, and it is in his son, Jesus. That's how the writer of Hebrews opens that very important book. And I'm not going to successfully, obviously, explain the Trinity here. we've, We've uncovered a lot of... Jesus describing his relationship to the Father, especially as he references here that his words and his works were submitted to the authority of the Father. This was part of his setting aside his rights as God and coming and taking the form of a man. He submitted himself to the leading of the Father to, to, so Jesus has, we've, we've un, uncovered a lot of the Trinity as Jesus is talked of himself as a representation of the Father, yet God himself. The Trinity is unified. The three persons of the Trinity, they're unified in their essence and in their attributes, yet they're distinct in personality. Three persons in one God. 
I heard a statement recently of a person that said, if I could get my arms around God, specifically around the Trinity, he would not be big enough to be God. And in the same way, if I could get my mind around, my finite mind around the infinite God, he would not be the infinite God. So the Trinity is one of those things that where you just have to rest in what we're told and leave it there. And we're not uncovering right now all that we're told in it. But here Jesus is emphasizing his functional unity with the Father. He is unified in function in terms of what the purpose of his works and of his words would be and were as he walked on this earth. And God the Father is revealed in Jesus' words and works as they are being done by God the Son. The Father and Son were united in the purpose and goals of Jesus' life on earth here. And the disciples were being told that they had already seen the Father, that they'd already heard the Father, the words of the Father, that they'd already worked alongside of the Father in Jesus. And we talked last week about the fact that in that that wonderful quote, Jesus, he's the only authorized revelation of God in human form, and he's the only authorized representative of, of humanity to God. And thereby, this is the reason no man will come to the Father except through him. And along these same lines, in the same way, it was only by his taking on his humanity that we could know God as we do. Seeing him walking out life before us. I want to share a quote from the same expositor's commentary that I just love here. It says, no material image or likeness can adequately depict God. So, so no, no picture, no statue can adequately depict God. Only a person can give knowledge of him since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object. So God can only be represented by a person. Furthermore, if a personality must be employed to represent God, that personality cannot be less than God and do him justice. Nor can it be so far above humanity that it cannot communicate God perfectly to humans. Jesus, the God-man, has been our only hope and a wonderful, sufficient hope to know who God is. And he has spoken finally through him. Jesus went on to say, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works of themselves. Again, Jesus is telling his disciples the things that they must entrust themselves to in order to not be troubled. 
And he implores them to believe that Jesus is what Jesus is about to tell them. He wants to entrust, he wants them to entrust themselves to the fact that he's not just one who can reveal the Father as Philip is asking him to be. He is just as good as having seen, heard from, and worked alongside of God the Father himself. You know, as a young person uh, walking with Christ, I can remember having read Philip, Jesus' response to Philip here and, and realizing that, that in my time in the scriptures, I kind of had areas that I liked to spend time with and, and especially um, during uh, Bible school at Moody, uh, I loved spending a lot of time in the epistles. It was kind of like learning all this um, doctrinal nuances and things like this and, and, just, and just learning of them also in, in uh, the letters of the epistles, explaining Christ, explaining the Christian life. But as I read this response to Philip, I realized the importance of reading the Gospels, the importance of studying the Gospels. And, and I hope that moving through the Gospel of John has been and continues to be a blessing for you And I want you to understand, you are seeing the Father. We find ourselves sometimes thinking, I wish God were more like Jesus. Right? Do you realize that Jesus is saying, he is like me. I am him. My whole life is to be a picture of him. You have seen him. You have heard him. A God of love and compassion rubbing tenderly dirt into a man's eyes to make him see again. A God of truth and wisdom speaking truth in love to the Samaritan woman. A God of purpose and mission with Jesus' works of redemption to accomplish for God's glory and for our good. My hope for you is that in our time in the Gospel of John, you are being drawn not just to Jesus, but you recognize this is the Father I'm seeing as well. This is how the Father wanted to be explained and displayed. Well, Jesus moves the discussion beyond the quality of his representation of and unity with God the Father. He moves into the disciples' future mission. And after, after, um, after he will once again go to the Father, he starts to unpack what their ministry will be like. And I believe that the remainder of our passage here is much more of a personal tone for us as a church. It's where we're at in redemptive history. It's where we're called to be as a body of believers, ministering with, for, with, and through Jesus in our community and in our families, in our regular moments of life. We see in verses 12 through 14, we are called to be on mission with Jesus. He says, and he's talking to them about 
those coming days when he won't be physically with them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, at this point in time, in Jesus' relationship with his disciples, with the fact that he's about to no longer be physically present with him, in our human understanding, what we would expect to happen here is him to disperse his followers. They never would have expected he's going to physically leave them. It's interesting because I just did a Google search on the phrase, disbanded his followers. Okay? And I came up with biographical works of, of all over the place from revolutionaries to political leaders to spiritual gurus to military coup leaders. And they all, you could tell, had this kind of bell curve. And when it came to this place where the run was over, the, the, they were coming to the end of the line, the momentum was wearing out, all of the, the biographies that this Google search pulled up used the same phrase, and he disbanded his followers. And humanly, this is what we would expect to happen if the leader is going away. But Jesus is informing them that they have no idea of the work that they're going to accomplish after he goes away. And we see here that we are to be on mission with Jesus in accomplishing his work. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, I've heard people argue from this verse that, see, this means that we should be having, we should be like doing signs and wonders, which I don't, I don't think that's something that's out of God's toolbox in any way. Okay, But I just want you to understand that Jesus' signs were different than what he calls his works. John has described a number of signs. And John, if he was referring to things like his changing water into wine, his walking on the water, his feeding the 5,000, his healing a man's son from 14 miles away, his healing a man who'd been lame for 38 years, or healing a man who'd been born blind, or his raising Lazarus from the dead. These are all things that John has described as Jesus' signs. And John camped on each one of these and the responses that took place and stuff. Here, Jesus describes his works which are his words and his signs and his, the, the just outgrowth of his person. The ESV study Bible says the works themselves includes the miracles of Jesus and also the other actions and teachings that he did and gave. 
It was words and actions that Jesus was describing when he was talking of his works in John 4, 34, when he says that Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And as he prays to the Father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And I want you to see also, so, so he's telling us, let me say, in summary, he's telling us, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, And we'll explain how that's greater in a sense here, but he's talking about the fact of we'll be moving forward with my mission in whatever way necessary or whatever way God directs. Just as the Father has been directing me, they will be directed as well. And it's because he is going to the Father Jesus is letting them to know that he is returning to his position. He's not returning to a place where humanly we think, well, you're going to be less effective if you're away from your movement. You're going to be less effective if if you're there, not here, wherever it is that there is. But we know, looking back on that, that he's returning to his position of power, his position of global effectiveness. He's returning to what Scripture calls being exalted, returning to his place of no longer being, having his power and his abilities submitted to uh, only being used in certain scenarios and such. His followers are going to be able, we are able to accomplish greater works because he returns to his place of being almighty and all-knowing and all-present. And those greater works are greater in the sense that they've been able to take a worldwide scope, transforming entire cultures and societies. While during his time on this earth, Jesus was limited to Judea. He was limited to Galilee. He was limited to wherever it was that he was. He did show power to say, your son is healed 14 miles away. But he was limited to his bodily existence for a purpose. But now he's telling them, I will be limitless and we're going to work together. We also have an accomplished gospel. We stand on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have God as our helper, as we'll learn about next week, where after Pentecost, with simply the coming of the Holy Spirit, a simple sermon turns 3,000 people to Christ in one day. It's, it's, goes without saying or, or without def- having to defend that more people came to Christ in the weeks following the helper coming, the helper in his work coming, more people came to Christ than came during his bodily ministry on this earth to the point that within 70 years, 100,000 people within Judea 
one-seventh of the population had come to Christ as their Savior. And he told them that this would happen. In Acts 1.8, that he would be, they, his disciples, would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But I want you to see here that he was our, had already told them, you're going to be accomplishing greater works and I'm going to be a part of it. You know, uh, yesterday and the Saturday before that, I became so grateful for power tools. And I mean like, you know, outdoor power tools. Um, the guys that were, that were repairing uh, deck boards out here on the deck, I couldn't imagine them doing that with a screwdriver, right? <clears throat> or uh, to have chainsaws. You know, I don't know what the day would have been like before those things. I can tell you what the day was like before they showed up. But, you know, um, or the, the thing they call the billy goat that is basically like a lawnmower on steroids that you can just mow down uh, shrubs and things with. I'm so grateful for these things. And <coughs> Mark, Mike Chalmers pulled out this uh, big tractor with a bucket on the front of it off his trailer. And here I, I'm pulling branches out of uh, the area where we were cutting stuff down and started to kind of take them over to the pile. And he was like, you can just lay them right there. Just lay them there. And what would have taken me lots of time and plenty of us lots of time, all we had to do was just drag it out of the woods. And he just took the thing and just pushed it all up into a big pile. The power that was able to be unleashed from these simple tools In comparison with Jesus' earthly ministry, he was telling his disciples that their ministry of the gospel was going to take on a power that they would never have expected. In a sense, he was saying, I will be your power tool. Almighty, all-knowing, all-present. I will be able to work with all of my power and all of my knowledge in every single location at the same time, and none of it will be depleted. I want you to notice what they say here, what he tells us here. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. He wasn't just speaking to his disciples. He is at work. And we, the, the, the work that we have to do in our lives and in the lives of other people is to be done with and through him. We should all be about accomplishing Jesus' work of bringing glory to God through the gospel. And this certainly involves helping others to come to know him. And it involves us personally growing. Where you need to grow, that spot that you're just like, why can't I push through this? Are you taking out the power tool? Greater works than these, he's saying, I will do. That work in us, helping us to experience redemption, the full reconciliation of our relationship with God, his full forgiveness, 
to experience his adoption of us as, as his children, these are all aspects of his grace. And to help others experience and to grow in these things. So we're about to be on mission with Jesus in accomplishing his work, but also through unleashing him in prayer. He's giving them here, this is the means by which it will be done. This is his God-ordained means by which we turn on the switch of Jesus the power tool. I hope I, I, hope I don't seem to be diminishing him or demeaning him by calling him a power tool here. But, but we're going to see here, though, that it's according to his will. It's according to his name. It's according to his glory. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, in our study of, of Daniel, I shared with you that I, I love the story of Daniel 9, where Gabriel shows up and he says, from the moment that your prayers were uttered, I was sent to you. And it amazes me that our prayers put in motion angels, can put angels in motion. It should amaze us even more that our prayers put Christ into action. And this passage, it's important that this passage not be hijacked, okay? Hijacking is no laughing matter. And I, just a quick story, I, I knew an airline gate agent when I used to work. During seminary, I worked for an airline. And um, <clears throat> this gate agent told a story. And the gate agent's the guy that meets the plane there at the airport and stuff. <clears throat> and there was a ramp worker named Jack helping clean out the plane. Okay, and the gate agent knew Jack because they worked at the same airport. And that pilot is there, and the gate agent comes through the plane, and he says, you know, greets the pilot and stuff. Just on the other side of the pilot, he looks at Jack, and he says, hi, Jack. The pilot turned around, put this gate agent, gate agent into a chokehold, and dropped him to the aisle of the plane. Hijacking is not a laughing matter, <laughs> and he knew that. But, but this, it's so easy for this, these verses to be hijacked by our man-centered view of God, by a, a, a view of God that it's like he's my cosmic Santa Claus and all I want from him is to just give me everything I want, right? So a lot of times people hear this and they're like, oh, man, you should be praying, praying for that, you know, whichever, whatever. But I, we need to be careful when we read and interpret these verses. We have a tendency to slide toward this man-based religion, which thinks to cause God to be obligated to serve us. In this mindset, when we read these verses, we read them as if they're telling us that there's some special way to get God to act. And that's not what he's saying here, okay? That's all simply I'm saying. He's not giving us some special way to get God to act. He's telling us, I will act upon your prayers when they fit my design. These verses are actually teaching the opposite 
but in, in that they're challenging us to pray Jesus' heart, to align ourselves to what it is that God is doing. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is so much more, obviously, we know. This is so much more than simply closing our prayers with, in in Jesus' name. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's understand what we mean by that. We might as well be saying, and this is, you know, do this if it's according to your plan, if it's according to your, your character, if it's according to who you are. It doesn't turn prayer into magical incantations with special phrases. The culture of to do or say something in the name of means in the authority, in the rights of someone else, and as much as they represent them well. You, we've all heard it said, I come in the name of the king. The person saying, I come in the authority of the king. I come with the blessing of the king. And so you need to heed what it is that I'm saying. For saying. We, we've all, maybe we haven't personally heard, open up in the name of the law. Same sort of sense. You could say that when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, it's the same thing as if you say, whatever you ask according to my fame. What I'm about. What you ask according to what I'm about, I will do. We're being encouraged to seek to pray according to God's will. Here. This, this is what John unpacks in First John 5, 14, when he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When we pray for things that are in line with the name and character of Christ, God takes action. Christ takes action. As C.S. Lewis was credited with saying, prayer doesn't change God. It changes me. We don't mature to a place where God must change and listen to us because we have learned secret words to say. We are changed by prayer. We should be changed by prayer in that we mature to where we are praying God's will. And therefore we're seeing him act. We're seeing him move. It's asking according to what Jesus desires and delights in. It's the exact opposite of God bending to our will. We also have to keep in mind that there's, Jesus has said other things about prayer. He said that we should pray, pray in faith without doubting, and I will do it. He said, and we'll learn about from him in chapter 15, the fact that to abide in him He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and and it will be done for you. So this is more so than, so much more than what we think of just say the right words. But a growing, changing, maturing relationship with Christ bends us to his will and our prayers start to take on a power and effectiveness. That can be attributed to nothing but being done by the person of Christ himself. And he gives a purpose for this. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's kind of like thinking in terms, again, of like those power tools. Jesus, if you will, being that power tool that the job just doesn't get done. Otherwise, think of him being like operating a wrecking ball. Okay? You know, a person sees a wrecking ball coming down the street. They, don't, they aren't able to come out and say, hey, 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 can you do me a favor? I wanted that window bigger. Now, that wrecking ball's probably got a purpose for being there. It's got a job that it's going to be doing. It's, you know, worked everything out with the city planner. It's got its permits all lined up. Nothing's coming down unless it fits the bigger plan. And that's what Jesus is saying here. His purpose is what we aim for with our prayers, fitting to his character and plan, glorifying the Father in the Son. Remember, this wrecking ball, this power tool I keep talking about is the almighty, all-knowing, all-present God. The early church experienced Christ working in greater ways with full access to his abilities. And they took Jesus' words serious here. You know, in, in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, when, when Luke decides these are the acts of the apostles, you know, these are the significant moments. In those 28 chapters, we find them praying 16 times. pretty significant. They knew that they were working with the God of the universe. They knew that God's work was going to be accomplished through Jesus himself working. I just want to read one of those moments. Um, a passage that I love. I think we looked at it just a little bit before from Acts 4. Starting in 23. After Peter and John were released by the religious leaders. It says they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had, had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then we'll pick it up in chapter, in verse 29, after they, they go through talking about praising him for being the one who David talked about in Psalm 2. And then he turns, they turn to their request and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to be protected. No. Grant to your servants to be at ease. No. They say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And verse 31 tells us, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm going to ask you something. Where are you standing at a cement wall 
with your hammer and chisel. When Jesus and his wrecking ball is parked right behind you, just waiting. Is it the spiritual blindness of a family member or a friend? Is it a physical or financial need? The direction of, that your neighborhood is heading? The choices maybe your children are making? Let not the future be what it is because we failed to pray. Let not the future be what it is because we failed to pray. Now, I'm going to ask Leanne to come up here for a moment. She's going to just play some kind of fill-in music because we're going to pray. And I, 